This is a Federal News Network podcast. The government-wide improper payment rate dropped by more than 2% in fiscal 2022. One of the biggest ways agencies can keep it headed downward is stronger identity management. Beryl Davis is the managing director of the Financial Management and Assurance Team at the Government Accountability Office, and Tim Persons is the GAO's chief scientist. They tell Federal News Network's Jason Miller about a new tool developed by the Joint Financial Management Improvement Program. You hear Davis first. And we really think that agencies, you know, trying to implement um, those those pilot programs um, might really find um, which are most successful, which aren't, what levels of, uh, of authority, um, you know, work, what don't work. What are the costs? You know, what are the costs versus the benefits? And, and so that's probably what I would point out. So I don't know if Tim wants to add to that. Yeah, I think that it is. It's time to, you know, we've collected a lot of data. We uh, obviously with these stimulus uh, monies that have been put out in recent years, we have a lot of, of, of things that we could go back and assess patterns and try and, again, do that risk assessment through the, through the programmatic lens of, uh, of whoever's uh, giving the benefit. And I think, uh, as Barry's saying, pilot, you just need to be able to start doing Right. We, we know this has been a big problem. Even when we talk about improper payments, we really are talking about estimates of improper payments. And one of the things we are doing in our uh, innovation lab in partnership with Barry and her team is just and, and our fraud uh, team as well is uh, trying to just explore the bounds of uh, how we compute that. So um, being able to see some things uh, piloted, as Barry was talking about, uh, in the various agencies, departments, and programs where their risk and their, their needs uh, can vary uh, based on their data is going to be, I think, a powerful outcome. And then uh, really that sharing piece is critical because we, re- we do need to say, here's what worked and here's what didn't work. Uh, and I think there's going to be a potential significant taxpayer savings uh, if we can do that. And that's what that's really after this report, we're pivoting into uh, the community that is into some of these smaller scale pilots to try and uh, explore the bounds uh, of the challenge, which is really what the tool was intended to do, to simulate, to let you have kind of think of it as knobs of a policy, it's set risk tolerances, set various variables, set budgeting, uh, because it all ties together, right? And um, so I think uh, that's what you're going to see in the near future. Tim, I'm glad you brought up this idea of sharing, because one of the things we've seen from reports from GAO and from the inspector general community is for instance, and we'll pick on the Social Security Administration as an example, they have a master death file, right? Someone passes away, it gets reported, but sometimes they can't share that with, let's say, the IRS. And then they have challenges of kind of sharing that data. My, my example may not be perfect. Maybe they've solved that one problem. But there are instances where agency X can't get data from agency Y unless if they have a specific agreement. And that makes delays. And that also increases the risk of improper payments. Did you all also talk about those issues that maybe Congress needs to solve or address because SSA and IRS, they're on the same team, but sometimes because of the way laws are written or policies are written, they're, they're bumping up against bigger obstacles. Yes. I mean, the, the laws sometimes prevent the sharing of data, and that is a concern. Uh, you know, the laws are written for a specified purpose. But, um, you know, when we look now at the importance and the value of data sharing, we're starting to question whether, you know, some of those laws could be changed. And in fact, um, GEO has gone on record for, um, in, in particular, you know, the, the, the information that SSA has, has put to, has, has developed or created or, or obtained 
and the value of sharing that with the do not pay initiative. So yeah, data sharing, you know, is important and, and sometimes the laws prevent um, that from happening. Yeah, I, I agree, Barry. And I think that uh, the sharing, uh, Jason, you said, again, like I mentioned before, we've written a number of great reports on the need for data sharing. And yet we also do work on the need for, let's say, for example, preservation of privacy. We operate in, in, a, in a framework of constitutional civil liberties. So how much the government collects and shares, disseminates, aggregates, and so on is, is highly sensitive. And like you put your finger on a great example, Jason, it, it, it takes a while to do those things that we do need to have from a policy perspective, starting with what I think is, is the best question to start with is how might we do this, right? Not may we do this, that, that's a permission question. Can we do this or an ability question? Those things do matter. But in this conversation, it says, well, how do we solve this thing? Because we do need, for example, like you said, Jason, to do things like mat match the uh, Social Security death master file with IRS so that IRS can do its job of proper revenue collection and, and you know, that the taxpayers, the honest taxpayers are, are protected and uh, the dishonest ones, uh, you have disincentives there in place to, to deal with that. Another example uh, that I think comes up is, you know, we, we do work, for example, on mitigation of opioids and things like that. And you can you can find uh, challenges or, or fraud or doctor shopping or things in data from uh, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Right, but that's medical data that that risk PII. You know, you would want to have some mechanism that, if you can see that kind of challenge in this, you know, opioid abuse or, or, or writing scripts and so on, that that would be referred to law enforcement officers. So, uh, those sort of things are what the government is now dealing with in this particular case for payment integrity. And uh, I think, again, the using a data-centric approach, using design thinking, coming up with a federated model, managing risk and so on, as the report talks about, uh, is going to help us solve that. But that, that data sharing is critical. Tim, you brought up the GAO Innovation Lab, something we've talked uh, quite a bit about in the past. Just wondering, are they taking on any other efforts around identity verification or looking at this problem anyway? Are they doing any other work based on this JFMIP effort? And the lab is working in this space uh, and uh, nothing that we're piloting uh, necessarily out of this report yet. We could uh, do that, but we're exploring that identity ver verification. A lot of this, I think, is allowing sister institutions, especially you know on the executive branch side where there, there's they have uh, a lot of agencies, departments, programs spending and doing this. We think that there might be some under JFMIP future partnerships to continue to compute in this area. But data has to be collected. We just are building kind of the, uh, the means of production, as it were, in the digital domain uh, to be able to do some of these more advanced pilots and things like that based upon questions that and, and data that may uh, in the future be available to us. So. Uh, yes, in general, working on things, but nothing uh, in, a, in a big, specific way right now uh, following on this report. Actually, Barry, I was just going to ask you that question. Is GAO doing any other work, any other reports? Has, has, have you guys gotten any requests from uh, lawmakers to do any more insights or, or reports on improper payments, aside from maybe uh, the annual report that you do or, or, or anything like that? We have definitely an interest on the part of Congress in doing more work in, in the realm of improper payments, um, which, you know, could include identity verification, but I'm not 
Um, I'm, I'm just, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm certainly not in the work that I've been doing um, relative to identity verification. Or, or just even in proper payments and more generally. Barry and my boss, the Comptroller General, uh, his top thing has been, and I remember when we founded the lab, he, he was saying, look, number one challenge you need to be working on is improper. And so we've been, again, strategically unpacking that. We've been in the, in the payment integrity uh, neighborhood, as it were, for a little while, but we're also just getting uh, started on uh, trying to compute things like fraud. Uh, again, we have a sister team that deals in fraud a lot, uh, but we're just sort of, as uh, my southern cousin would say, we're fixing to get ready on uh, how we try and put, just like we're trying to compute the bounds, we don't know yet, but we'd like to be able to compute the bounds of uh, the size of the magnitude of the payment integrity piece. We also are, are uh, making steps toward doing this at the fraud space. And then, of course, uh, uh, in Barry's team, they're looking at the improper payments overall. And anything that we can come up with uh, together, uh, I think that uh, that's something that we you might see emerge out of uh, GAO, if not GFMIP as a whole in the future. Tim Persons is the chief scientist, and Beryl Davis is the managing director for financial management and assurance, both at the Government Accountability Office, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in direct care. And and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know take a look at it and see, see you know throw send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. and you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, 
getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by always happy, always enthused, uh, has a, has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out. And come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition, and they're so committed, and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs and 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 I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that. Uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working in the Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a and it's so unique and it's so. Uh, joyful and and uh, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded everyone yeah. is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think when you, when you go back to the 
founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.